All set? Hi, everyone. We can uh, get started. Uh, my name is Matt Haver. For, you, for those of you that don't know me, uh, welcome to everyone here and also those watching remotely. Um, uh, it's my real pleasure to introduce Brent and Paolella. For, for those of you that have been here a real long time, you might remember Brent uh, and I working closely together uh, under Mark Israel's guidance over, over a decade ago now. But it's probably the last time I could keep up with Brent. Uh, he moved on to the Dana-Farber, where he worked with Ramin uh, Baruch-Himsla uh, group, um, understanding where now now termed the Cyclops class of uh, cancer dependencies. And this is a really fascinating body of work. Um, he then moved on to his current position at the Broad, where he's been working on the Cancer Dependencies Project, and he'll be discussing that today. Um, Dr. Palella does have financial interests as a major stockholder in Novo Broad Greenhouse uh, that he will uh, post on his, during his talk, too. And uh, Alan Hartford, however, does report that these relationships with industry have been resolved uh, and that presentation has been validated. There will be some discussion of off-label off -label or investigational drugs or products, but he is not receiving any direct payments, maybe other than a couple of pints, you know. Um, so for CME credit, please use the number outside uh, of the door. Um, I'd, I'd be happy to facilitate the Q&A at the end of the presentation. So thank you, and let's all welcome Brent. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Matt. Uh, you guys can hear me okay? Yeah? Maybe. Um, great. So yeah, I'll, I'll be talking about some of the recent work that uh, I'm doing at the Broad uh, in the cancer dependency map and some of the lessons that we've learned along the way uh, over the course of the last three years or so. Um, so these are the conflicts again. Um, basically, I intend to discuss some novel potential therapeutic targets, and I think that's sort of one of the major goals of the cancer dependency map. And so I'm, I'm not directly receiving any payments with this, but um, you know, hopefully if we make progress, maybe I can get a couple of pints along the way. Um, so I'll touch upon just some high-level uh, aims and scope of the, the debt map, and then I'll focus most of my time on uh, two uh, vignettes uh, about novel uh, passenger gene vulnerabilities in cancer. Uh, one is a class of genes that we call Gemini genes, sort of staying within the Greek naming uh, convention here, where allelic imbalances and loss of heterozygosity can unveil uh, frequent cancer dependencies. And then I'll talk about another project um, on paralog dependencies where um, collateral lethality with tumor suppressor gene loss uh, reveals additional therapeutic targets. And feel free to ask questions along the way, and I've also cooked in a little time for questions at the end. Um, so diving into the overall scope of the dependency map uh, and precision cancer medicine uh, more generally, in the idealized situation, we could take a patient and profile the molecular and genetic features of that patient by sequencing data and ideally use prior information, this could be preclinical or clinical evidence, to select uh, therapeutic vulnerabilities, and then that would inform a rational treatment plan for that patient. So examples of this could be EGFR mutant cancers responding to EGFR inhibitors, uh, BRAF mutant tumors responding to BRAF inhibition, or a microsatellite unstable tumors responding to immune checkpoint blockade. But the challenges of this are, are twofold. First is that for the majority of tumors, we haven't identified systematically all of the vulnerabilities a tumor may have. Uh, and then that uh, is compounded with the fact that even if we did know these vulnerabilities, are there existing drugs that are available to target it? And those tend to be limited, so we need certainly much more information for both challenge one and challenge two. So as part of the cancer dependency map, the idea is to help accelerate 
precision cancer medicine. So the approach that we take at scale is to use cell lines, or increasingly now organoid uh, in vitro models, for as many tumors as we can find of diverse genetic backgrounds. We simultaneously profile the molecular and genetic information. This is RNA sequencing, uh, mutation calling, et cetera. But we also are doing functional experiments uh, profiling the genetic dependencies and the drug sensitivities for these patient samples. Uh, and in the end, the hope is that we could identify predictors of response to either inactivation of a gene or um, treatment with a small molecule. And that would allow us to sort of map to inform idealized uh, precision cancer medicine. Um, I'll mention and encourage everyone to visit depmap.org. This is uh, a portal that the Broad is releasing data quarterly. Uh, Pre-publication, we categorize cancer cell lines. You can browse by mutation type, look at these dependencies, and this is all freely available um, to the public. Uh, I'll, I'll mention just where we're active in the dependency map now, screening additional cell lines is using uh, pooled uh, CRISPR loss of function screens. So uh, in these examples, we take uh, a lengthy library. So that's uh, each viral uh, particle has a guide targeting a different gene um, to knock out a different gene in a cancer cell line. And we infect these cells in three to four replicates per line. And then we grow them for 21 to 28 days. So during that time, the cells have knockout of different genes within that cell line. And they're competing with each other to see who's sort of uh, surviving uh, during culture. We then can use uh, sequencing to amplify what guides are here and look at the relative abundance from when we first infected the cell line to um, the end of the culture time. That sequencing then infers which cell lines uh, or which cells in that line have dropped out and what knockout they had that affected the viability of that cell. So uh, thinking more broadly about the dependency map, uh, what we hope to help advance is novel therapeutic targets in really defined patient populations. Uh, we also look for preclinical or clinical compounds that have novel activity. This is something in the drug repurposing hub I won't be speaking with today, but it's also on the portal. So if you're interested in small molecule profiling, um, there's about 5,000 compounds that have uh, viability data now across about 700 cell lines. We're also looking for novel indications of existing or known targets. Um, that would be sort of the uh, indication expansion for, for known inhibitors, for example, and then potentially refining uh, biomarkers or predictors of response for existing drugs that maybe were underappreciated. And really, it's the profiling of both these genetic or chemical perturbations that can help us try to make a map of all of the vulnerabilities that cancers may have. So how do we do this uh, practically? Uh, we, uh, in collaboration with the Cancer Data Sciences Group, uh, there is a systematic prediction of what cancer vulnerabilities are out there. So we uh, use a random forest model to plug in as much information as really we can annotate about these cell lines. So it's about 100,000 features. This is the genes they express from RNA sequencing, copy number and mutation data, also lineage, other bits of information. And we use that uh, when we try to predict a dependency profile. So this is a histogram. So these would all be the summary of a single gene knockout across each cell line. And zero is basically what the negative controls of the screen are. These are not. And it's scaled to minus one, where the targeting guides there are the panessential controls, ribosome, spliceosome, very panessential processes. And if we have a long tail like this, some cell lines are requiring that gene uh, for survival, but most cell lines aren't. And so we try to computationally predict what is it so special about these rare, more dependent cell lines. Uh, and an example here, uh, an output of such a model for CDK2 dependency could be multifaceted based on the expression of cyclin E or CDK, uh, CDKN2A copy number expression. Uh, and so we try to 
systematically uh, identify and predict these vulnerabilities. And so this is still very much a hypothesis generating uh, process where if we can find predictive features, uh, we could generate therapeutic hypotheses and then map cancer vulnerabilities. But really what ends up happening is this is a, a largely automated process that then we are manually trying to validate and identify um, these targets. So uh, what came out of the first cancer dependency map? This is from uh, some work of mine and also colleagues in 2017 where they scroll, um, screened about 500 cancer cell lines with uh, shRNA libraries. And there was largely four classes of dependencies that you can find within cancer that um, are selective to certain genomic features. The first are probably well-established mutation-driven dependencies. These are HRAS, KRAS, uh, a lot of the mutated oncogenes um, we're very familiar with. Um, and similarly, there's expression-driven dependencies where high expression of a gene would lead to dependency on that gene. These are sort of copy number gained and amplified oncogenes, uh, SOX10, um, MIB, many other like FLT3, uh, certain fusions. Um, but then there's interesting dependencies uh, that I've been working on mostly, Cyclops genes in which you could lose a copy of a gene, say it's a pan-essential gene, the cancer cells express that gene at much more uh, lower levels, and then they're more sensitive to knock, further knockdown. Um, and there's many Cyclops genes here uh, as well. And then I'll touch upon more um, paralog dependencies uh, going forward, but this is a, an exciting class of potential therapeutic targets. Um, thinking somewhat at a higher level of these general, general categories of dependency, they kind of fall into two uh, classes. One is dependency on that same gene. So you can have a mutation-driven dependency like BRAF, for example. Um, the relative abundances, these are actually relatively rare, but they're the driver genes. They're excellent therapeutic targets, but an individual cancer may only derive from a couple of initiating oncogenic events. And so the number of sort of mutation-driven or expression-driven dependencies you find in a tumor uh, may be somewhat limited. Cyclops genes also count in scope although they are uh, much more abundant. Um, but then there's also this other class where there's dependencies on a different gene. These are sort of thought of as synthetic lethal targets, um, paralogs being one that um, is re they're relatively numerous in the data set, and then Gemini genes are another uh, gene class I'll uh, talk about in just a few slides. The one thing that we don't see quite frequently, and I'm happy to discuss more, they are rare, but there are these pathway dependencies where you might think there's an oncogenic process activating, activating certain signaling cascade, but then some other pathway is really important to maintain that cell viability. We don't find those, uh, I think, as often as we would have hoped initially on the outset, but um, there are also some limitations to these screens as to why we might not be observing these uh, as often. Uh, so next I'll talk about uh, Gemini genes. So um, one of the major driving questions to this was uh, the cancer genome is really heavily disrupted. There's mutations on average about every megabase, but in terms of copy number alterations, these aneuploid cancers have many genes that are disrupted in the number of copies. As you can see here in this karyotype, a normal diplokaryotype versus a bladder carcinoma, there is heavy disruption by copy number alterations. This occurs at the chromosome level and many fusions. For example, you can't even see an intact chromosome 13. It's mashed up in all of these different uh, uh, translocated chromosomes. And so we asked, well, are there specific vulnerabilities we can identify from these copy number alterations? Uh, and one common result from these copy number alterations is loss of heterozygosity. So in a normal tissue, you will have uh, two different alleles, uh, allele A and B, one from mom, one from dad. 
Uh, and you might be heterozygous, which means there's a germline SNP where there's a slight coding variant between these two uh, gene copies. And during the process of transformation and loss of heterozygosity, you will lose one of these alleles. So only allele B is retained here. And this occurs quite frequently with uh, essential genes. And so the idea that we had was that these cells may actually rely on just one allele's expression um, for survival, but the patient sample, uh, or the normal cells in the patient um, would still have two alleles. So in a hypothetical situation, you could have an allele-specific inhibitor that may bind only one of these alleles, but not the other allele. And so an ideal situation here is the inhibitor uh, activity would only selectively target one allele over the other, and that in a normal tissue, you may have some partial reduction of a single allele, but that the cancer cell only has that one allele remaining, and that would lead to some therapeutic index um, between tumor and normal. So we call these Gemini vulnerabilities. We really struggled to kind of come up with a clever acronym, but we couldn't. It's basically just about um, the twins, Castor and Pollux, where Castor was uh, a mortal uh, twin and would be, in this analogy, susceptible to allele-specific inhibition, whereas Pollux was immortal uh, and uh, would uh, not be inhibited by the therapeutic. And so if we could find specific alleles and show this proof of concept, maybe we'd be uh, able to identify a potentially new approach to specific um, new therapeutic targets in cancer. Must be a big image. Let's see how we're doing here. Ah, the pictures. Let's see. Yeah, so who actually did this work? Uh, part of it was me, but uh, it was a good team. I'll leave it like this for a few moments, but you may recognize someone in the crowd here. Um, so, uh, Gemini Gene Project acknowledgments. Um, Caitlin was a graduate student on the project that I co-mentored. She's now at 23andMe. Will Gibson is an oncology fellow. Uh, and then Meredith, who's in the audience somewhere, um, also worked heavily on this project. And then Ramin's picture, actually, you can't see, but I think he would probably get a kick out of the fact that he was excluded. Um, uh, we together uh, worked on identifying and validating these dependencies. Um, and so really, these Gemini dependencies lie at the intersection of a lot of different data types that basically need to come together for us to and sort of enable validation. And that was... Uh, genetic variation, where we were profiling the exact database. This is sequencing from about 60,000 whole exomes. There's about 9 million variants, so this is the normal germline variation. We integrated that with the DepMap CRISPR data to identify what is an essential gene. So we identified about uh, 1,400 essential genes, and then we also needed to know, well, how frequently do these genes undergo loss of heterozygosity? So that's integrating TCGA data from about 10,000 primary tumors. Uh, and one highlight summary of all of this is that about half of essential genes have one missense SNP that actually changes the uh, amino acid sequence of the protein. Uh, and there's about uh, 1,700 protein altering variants. So these are relatively common events that occur uh, in cancer. But we wanted to dive into this more deeply. So we looked first at the rate of um, loss of heterozygosity in these 10,000 TCGA samples. Each dot here is an individual patient sample. This is a cumulative distribution function for the TCGA samples. And we see that sort of the average cancer has about 16% of its genes undergo LOH. So this is a very common event in cancer genomes um, and one that we wanted to 
uh, understand further. And if you wanted to look well, specifically in these TCGA patient samples, again, that's what each of these dots represent across uh, roughly 30 tumor types, the number of essential genes that undergo LOH uh, in a patient sample uh, averages somewhere around 189. There's different tumor types, of course, that have more or less aneuploidy that come into play here. But these are nonetheless very common events in many patient tumors uh, that do contain uh, copy number alterations. Uh, the other thing at play here is actually the frequency of the SNP in the population, because this is germline genetics. How often do you see a patient that's going to be heterozygous initially at uh, whatever locus? And we see here plotting the percent of individuals that have uh, that are heterozygous in exact databases versus the number of Gemini SNPs. Really, there's about 14% of uh, individuals for the average variant, uh, a patient would be heterozygous. Some of these are approaching equal likelihood in the population. You have a 50-50 chance of getting either allele, and some are much more rare. For us, we've generally categorized uh, SNPs that have at least a 1% prevalence in the population as being considered uh, possibly a, a Gemini vulnerability. And so then we, we took this idea to the lab. So uh, we've done validation in two genes. The first one is uh, PRIM1. So this is uh, an essential gene that's important in uh, DNA replication, so it's the catalytic subunit of uh, primase, which synthesizes oligos that are important in extending um, the lagging strand during DNA replication. And so for PRIM1, the SNP uh, is uh, here. It's a, a D5A substitution, so it's common. It's about 16% minor allele frequency in the population. It frequently undergoes LOH and long ovarian pancreatic cancer. Um, to varying percentages. And we wanted to pick at least something that was somewhat of a structurally significant amino acid substitution, which is an aspartic acid to an alanine. And so this is just modeling here from a known structure. Uh, we can at least say that this SNP lies in a, solid, you know, a small molecule accessible location, um, but it's not directly near the catalytic uh, domain. But that's, that's something I'm happy to sort of discuss as we think about going forward with this. Um, so how did we validate this uh, in the lab? We used um, CRISPR, and CRISPR turns out to be exquisitely sensitive for some of these SNPs if the SNPs land in the right location. So we took advantage of the fact that uh, CRISPR, at least the S-pyogenes Cas9, requires this NGG-PAM motif, and that if you had a SNP that either generated a novel PAM or disrupted an existing PAM, you might have allele-specific knockout. And so uh, undergoing in a cancer cell, LOH, if the cancer cell loses the resistant allele and only has this sensitive allele that could be cleaved by the Cas9 nuclease, you could have allele-specific knockout. So if we then performed allele-specific knockout, a uh, heterozygous uh, sample, which would be normal tissues, for example, would have indels in one allele, but not the other allele. These cells would tolerate that knockout. But then in the cancer cell, this would lead to cell death for selective knockout of the only essential gene allele left. Uh, and at the time, we were actually kind of skeptical, I would say, that CRISPR would actually be that selective. Uh, it was still sort of early days in knowing the selectivity. But nonetheless, we engineered cell lines that uh, were either uh, containing just this is the resistant allele on R, or S is the sensitive allele here, PRIM1. It was the only copy these cell lines had encoded. And if we targeted PRIM1 with a nearby guide that targeted either allele, this is the non-allele specific NA guide, looking at the percent of indel formation we have here, can't see it, but this is uh, yellow is the frame shift and activating mutations. We see that we have a nice control where we can cut um, 
uh, both alleles with relatively similar frequencies. However, if we used an allele-specific guide targeting that PAM that was disrupted, there were no reads out of the 50,000 uh, reads we did in uh, PCR that were inactivated by the resistant allele, but we still see strong cutting of the sensitive allele. So that allowed us to sort of move forward and validate um, this in cell viability effects. Uh, so we did just that. These are cell titer glow growth curves. Uh, so this is uh, proliferation over time. This is about a 12 to 15 day assay. And we engineered a variety of different flavors of uh, combinations of alleles. So we could take a cell line that was heterozygous, and if we knocked out here in red, this is the non-allele specific, just knock out the panessential gene, the cells um, uh, die and then grow slower over time. Um, and this is true in a variety of cell lines that are just naturally heterozygous. We also made isogenic cell lines that either only retained the resistant allele or the sensitive allele. And what you can see is the cell lines with the resistant allele here in blue, this allele-specific guide, um, the cells tolerate this uh, fine because they don't have knockout, whereas the cells with the sensitive allele are potently sensitized to this allele-specific guide, um, indicating that uh, there is allele-specific dependence uh, of PRIM1 within these cell lines. We went on to do this again with uh, a different pan-essential gene. This is XOSC8. Uh, it's part of the uh, RNA exosome, so it's this one subunit here in this larger uh, molecular complex. And this was an interesting uh, SNP variant because it lies at the interface of a protein-protein interaction domain, and it's a proline to histidine substitution. So at least in theory, there may be some different uh, functional groups in chemistry where a small molecule might be able to be leveraged. Uh, so again, we did this uh, engineered cell lines that were either resistant uh, and only contained the resistant allele, either two copies or one copy of the resistant allele. And you see in blue again, allele-specific uh, knockout of SC8, these uh, cells tolerate this. Whereas in the sensitive allele uh, uh, cell lines, you see here in blue that these cells are potently sensitized to XOSC8, uh, allele-specific inactivation. So uh, to summarize this part, uh, Gemini dependencies. So we've identified over 5,000 potential dependencies. Many of these are uh, SNPs that actually don't alter the protein coding region of the gene. They're sort of silent. Um, and then we've also then gone on to further prioritize potential candidates because there's thousands of these out there, but they kind of have to have a lot of features going for them to enable sort of drug development and future um, therapeutic advancement. And so. Uh, what I won't discuss is that we have gone through to prioritize these, looking at uh, practical considerations for drug development. Uh, can you recombinantly express this? Is there an existing crystal structure? It turns out crystal structures are one of the major bottlenecks in knowing where this variant is. Can you model it? Do you even know where it is sort of uh, in the uh, structure of the protein? We also looked for structurally significant SNPs. So when they did change amino acid, it was something that was a much more dramatic alteration uh, to the um, side group chemistry. Uh, we also looked visually for variants that were near druggable pockets um, that might be more or less likely that you could at least get a small molecule to get a foothold in and then maybe use some of the novel um, single amino acid variants to, to modify specificity. And we have at least 10 that we think are tractable for drug development. They check all of these boxes and it's a matter of like going through and, and trying to actually do um, the early stage drug development to see if it's feasible. Um, yes? These are not, in some ways, selected SNPs, um, sort of biologically. They're random SNPs that showed up in a particular patient, right? Is that correct? Yeah, so these actually are germline SNPs. And because we're looking in essential genes, you actually think that these substitutions would not be sort of deleterious to, say, organismal development. 
So they tend to be innocuous. Yep. Okay, so I think the fact that, uh, just the fact that these are germline, mm-hmm. there's going to be some percentage of patients that have lost heterozygosity, and they originally had this germline heterozygosity. Yes, yep, exactly. The normal cells are going to be heterozygous, and then the cancer cells will be sort of monozygous. Yep. Um, and the other thing I'll note here is, uh, by prioritizing it, yes, we have many, many candidates here, but that's because we selected from a very large number ahead. But what we would need is novel and different therapeutic approaches to target the full spectrum of these, whether you could invoke therapeutic delivery of CRISPR or at least some antisense or some genetic means of suppressing these dependencies um, is, is sort of where we're going. So many fewer of these are amenable to small molecule inhibitors, um, but if there were ways that we could leverage um, genetic suppression and deliver that effectively, that would unveil many more dependencies. Uh, so next I'll talk about uh, the Paralog Dependency Project that I've been working on, um, where collateral lethality with losing tumor suppressor genes um, can unveil uh, additional passenger gene uh, vulnerabilities. Um, so this is work um, that's still actively ongoing. We've actually just submitted this, so this is like fresh on the bench. Um, happy to field more questions on this. This is work with uh, Jasper Neggers, who's a postdoc at the Broad, uh, a couple of really great, talented um, research associates, Michael Rothberg at HANA uh, and Tom. And this is work that's also been co-led. There's one more picture here. It's funny they don't load. Let me give it one more go. Let's give it a shot. Well. You would see pictures of both Andy and Paquita. So Paquita's uh, uh, my sort of partner in crime, who's the director of the cancer dependency map here, um, and Andy Aguirre, who's uh, an assistant uh, professor at Dana-Farber. And so this project stemmed from work where when we tried to systematically predict dependencies, you can throw the whole kitchen sink at it, 10,000 features, everything we know about these cell lines, but sometimes that's just way too many hypotheses, and it turns out that a lot of these features are sort of correlated together. If you're looking at gene expression and lineage, obviously what makes a cell type a certain cell type, gene expression may correlate, and you're looking at both trying to plug in, this is breast cancer, but it's also the gene expression profiles of a bunch of breast cancer cell lines. So we also can limit the number of features we try to use to predict using some biological hypotheses. So here we had a hypothesis that maybe related genes to the function of whatever that gene is that is uh, killing some of these cell lines might be important. And so we took a gene ontology, a protein signaling pathway, and used PPI networks to sort of limit the search space and then uh, use some predictive modeling to identify if there were um, key features that might indicate why some cell lines depend on this gene for survival. Uh, And one of the top hits that we had was a dependency on a gene called VPS4A. And so this was initially predicted by copy loss of the SMAD4 tumor suppressor. So this is actually like the, the real data here looking at um, cell lines that are highly dependent. So each column is a cell line here. Uh, if you're highly dependent on BPS4A, you tend to have copy loss of SMAD4. And this is actually um, plotted down here. So this is the dependency score again. Apologies, you can't see it. But zero is non-dependent. So these cell lines, each dot is a cell line. These are non-dependent cells. And then shifted over here to minus one, these are dependent cells. And the ones that depend on BPS4A tend to have lower SMAD4 copy number. Plotted in a slightly different way, you could sort of naively have just said, well, let's look at SMAD4 loss tumors or cell lines versus all other cell lines. So here, this is the, the difference in the, the series score, the dependency value. So um, the genes that are more dependent with SMAD4 loss, VPS4A, is 
a striking hit um, across the data set. And we actually found, and I'll get into in the future, a couple other co-related genes that were really informative in understanding how this works at a molecular level um, going forward. But this was an interesting association with SMAD4 loss. And what was striking about this was that the key paralog to VPS4A, VPS4B, is really about 12 megabases away from SMAD4. So if you correlate or plot the copy number of either SMAD4 versus VPS4B, they're highly correlated because they're in uh, linkage with it, each other. And so that it actually turned out that it wasn't SMAD4 loss that's driving this, it's the loss of this um, collateral gene and a key paralog of VPS4A. So in this uh, scenario of paralog dependencies, these are um, sort of a subset of synthetic lethal dependencies that occur from loss of function of a redundant paralog. So in the setting of a cancer, activity of one of the paralog genes is lost. This could be copy number loss, it could be mutation, methylation, but there's a reduction in paralog activity. So normal cells have two paralogs, they're different genes, but basically doing the same cell function, and that cancer cells will lose one paralog from a variety of different uh, disruption methods uh, in the genome. And that maybe this unveils an exploitable vulnerability where the cancer has lost paralog B, in this case to copy loss, and we could go in with a therapeutic that only targets paralog A. Um, so it's sort of a, a related idea to the Gemini dependencies, except now rather than alleles, you have two separate genes that are doing the same function. And when we looked, well, how frequently does VPS4B copy loss occur in cancers? What would the potential patient population be? we see that a third of all cancers actually have copy loss of VPS4B. So this is very common. Some of this, this is driven by SMAD4, but there's other tumor types without SMAD4 loss that have copy loss. So here, uh, again, is TCGA pan-can across a variety of tumor types here on the x-axis. And then we have the copy number of VPS4B. Each dot, again, is a patient sample, um, and it's rank ordered by the frequency within that tumor type of VPS4B copy loss. And so I highlighted in red, these are deep deletions, so they're not homozygous null, for VPS4B, but they at least have single copy loss and a diploid, or if there's more ploidy, they have much deeper losses. And really, all of these red dots are here just to highlight the fact that it's across many, many tumor types. And so depending on what tumor type you look for, two-thirds of pancreas, over half of colon and ovarian cancers um, have copy loss of VPS4B, so this is very common. And what made this tractable for at least early drug discovery is that VPS4 and B are AAA ATPases, so they have enzymatic activity, um, here, they have an MIT domain that's important in uh, nucleating and localizing these uh, proteins that I'll get into in the next slide, but then they also have a self-contained uh, ATPase uh, cassette. And so, how does this uh, protein complex work? So, uh, it assembles as a hexamer, so you can see each subunit here is, is color-coded differently. These are uh, different subunits. And that it's important in depolymerizing escort 3 filaments during membrane fission. So as as a cell is uh, undergoing membrane fission, this is an inverse membrane evolution, so all of the pinching is happening here, and it sort of pops off uh, a new membrane that would either contain the cytosol, so this is also important in, like, HIV budding, um, but this is a key uh, molecular motor that basically depolymerizes these chump 4 uh, and escort 3 filaments here, and it allows constriction of the neck, and it's actually pinching this off and constricting it to allow uh, the membrane fission to actually occur. And so, as you might imagine, membrane fission is an essential cell process, and it's involved in many different types of biologies. Um, this is endosome fission here, um, membrane repair, uh, if the plasma membrane is damaged, 
Uh, I'll show some data on uh, cytokinesis and abscission. This is the very last step of cell division where daughter cells are actually physically separating their plasma membranes from uh, each other. It's important in the nuclear envelope formation. And so it's a, it's a quite active process that undergoes uh, many features within the cell. Uh, so we sought to validate this first because it's a screen hit. Is this actually sort of real biology that we're picking up in these depth screens? And so this is a summary slide of cell titer glow viability data um, that we've scaled. So we, in parallel, running in our CTG plates, run negative controls. These target intergenic regions of the genome, so they control for the cutting effect and DNA damage effect you'd see with CRISPR, and we scale that to zero. And then we also co-run pan-essential controls. Here, that would be uh, different pan-essential genes, the ribosome, spliceosome, and proteasome. And then we took a basket of cell lines. So this group over here is copy neutral for VPS4B. There are control lines. And this is VPS4B copy loss. And each guide, we have three different guides targeting VPS4A, the viability effect was scaled relative to these controls. So you can see that there are some cell lines here that are highly dependent on VPS4A to the extent that it's indistinguishable from the effect size you would see from a pan-essential gene knockout. So it's a very potent dependency in many contexts. And we also did this, of course, uh, in many cell lines that uh, were derived from different tumor types, including pancreas, ovarian, and rhabdomyosarcoma, which is a, a pediatric cancer that is exquisitely sensitive to VPS4A. We've also validated this uh, in vivo. So uh, we saw that VPS4A suppression can lead to tumor regression and prolonged survival. So we used an RMS cell line, SMSCTR, that's expressing tetracycline-inducible shRNAs. Uh, and what we have here is a seed control, which is a three-base pair mutation from the original on-target SH that ablates the on-target knockdown, but it retains sort of the microRNA mimicking uh, capabilities of some of these RNAIs, and it's a nice control for uh, the false positives you may see in RNAi. And what we saw in these subcutaneous xenografts, each plot here is an individual mouse uh, and tumor volume, is that only these downward-facing arrows, when we suppress VPS4A with the addition of DOCs, we lead to tumor regression early on, and then eventually they grow out. And when, lo and behold, when we look at these outgrowths, they actually don't have VPS4A knocked on anymore. So it's a nice test of the sensitivity and specificity of, um, of our knockdowns. And here's a Kaplan-Meier curve derived from the same data showing prolonged survival due to um, tumor regression. We've gone into some of the cell and molecular details of VPS4A depletion. Um, here's showing some of the cellular effects. So these uh, are uh, basically apoptosis curves using an incusite. So this is time and hours here, uh, either with two different VPS4A targeting guides or uh, negative control cutting control using a caspase 3.7 um, fluorescent recorder that's activated upon um, caspase uh, 3.7 activity. And we see really nice upregulation of apoptosis uh, during this time course. We also looked for phenotypes that might be specific to VPS4A uh, function. So one uh, easy and striking phenotype here is looking at abscission. So here is uh, tubulin-stained uh, cells, either negative control cells or those that are uh, targeted with VPS4A inactivation, and we see these cells basically still stuck together in this late stage of abscission where they physically can't separate their plasma membranes from one, uh, one another. Um, and that gave us some confidence that at least what we're observing tends to be a specific phenotype of VPS4A inactivation. Um, the question sort of gets to, well, how are these cells dependent? What's the sort of therapeutic index uh, for these paralogs? 
Uh, and so we started to look into the relative expression of both the paralogs and, and how they function. And so here is a plot from the DEPMAP cancer cell lines. Each dot is a cell line in this example, uh, looking at VPS4B copy number versus uh, RNA-seq expression. And we see a really strong correlation where the cells that have lost copies of VPS4B express it uh, at lower levels. Uh, and this correlation is actually quite striking. So if you plot the correlation coefficients here uh, for every gene in the genome versus its own copy number, VPS4B is one of the most correlated genes versus RNA expression. So it's not like the cells are really responding to uh, some transcriptional feedback in that if you lose copies of VPS4B, you tend to express it much lower. Then we also went and validated this. So this is actually a large amount of work just in a small slide here by uh, Western Blots, looking at the copy number and how that impacts protein abundance. And there's a very strong relationship that's still retained where you lose copies of B, the protein is less. And that suggests that the tumor cells that have copy loss express VPS4B at lower levels than tissues, and that might be a fundamental difference between uh, tumor and normal cells. We then went on uh, to do both gain and loss of function experiments uh, to manipulate VPS4B expression and see how does that impact on dependency on the other paralog, VPS4A. So uh, again, these are uh, cell titer glow viabilities that are scaled uh, to our negative controls here in blue, or our pan-essential genes, what the viability effect is, uh, here, and then we have two different VPS4A targeting guides. So we can take a cell line that's normally insensitive, that has normal copies of VPS4B. If we then knock out VPS4B, we're now potently sensitizing those cells uh, to VPS4A knockout. And this is actually something where these cells are dying probably much more rapidly than even some of the pan-essential genes. So it's really stop cells in, its, uh, in their tracks if they have an activation of both A and B. Uh, we also did the uh, sort of rescue experiments in a cell line that is normally dependent on VPS4A. If we overexpress VPS4B and then knock out A, these cells are now rescued from that. So it suggests that um, VPS4B is both necessary and sufficient for uh, this dependency. So we have a current working model. Um, some of this uh, is still actively going on in, in the lab where uh, copy neutral cells or normal cells in this case would produce A and B monomers and they could potentially interact as a heterohexamer. This is not supported by literature yet, but we're very actively interested in trying to understand can these paralogs um, compensate for each other and actually uh, bind each other. But if you inactivated VPS4A here, you had enough VPS4B in reserve that you can get complex activity and the cells can tolerate this. But if you're starting from a cell line or potentially a patient tumor that has copy loss of B, that sort of buffered reserve is lost a can compensate and take over for most of the activity, but if you go in and further knock out VPS4A, you'd have insufficient uh, residual VPS4B expression for um, complex activity and cell viability. And so one of the last things uh, I'll touch upon here is uh, some insight we had in a genome-wide screen to understand what could modulate um, the dependency on VPS4A. This, uh, we took an approach to use uh, the pooled uh, lentiviral CRISPR library where we introduced that into a cell line that had dox-inducible shRNA to suppress uh, VPS4A. We either uh, didn't treat with dox and just had the normal genes in, across the genome-wide screens that would drop out as a control, or we could induce VPS4A knockdown over two weeks and then compare the abundances. And so what you can see over here is a volcano plot where we actually see many genes that can rescue VPS4A dependency uh, and likely many genes on the other side of this plot that um, could sensitize cells to VPS4A knockdown. 
And so if we look more closely at some of the related genes in this screen, what we found was something that really started to unveil a lot of the important escort 3 uh, pathway biology, and that there are certain genes, some of the top hits, CHUMP4B is an actual escort 3 filament that um, can actually rescue cells from dependency on VPS4A, whereas we see other complex members that are important in building these hexamers, VTA1 and OAK3 is a related kinase that are important in assembling these hexamers potently sensitized. So on the sensitization side, if you can further inactivate the complex assembly or inhibit the activity, you can sensitize. But interestingly, some of these substrates like VPS4B, which forms these uh, polymers here, if you knock those out, that's somewhat protective to the cells. And so we have a running hypothesis right now that these escort 3 filaments are polymerizing on these newly formed uh, membranes that should undergo fission, but that it's the, they're starting to aggregate and they may become toxic and they basically accumulate within these cells. And that if you knock a couple of these structural filaments out, there may be still enough residual activity for some of the key uh, escort 3 filaments to still be turned over, but that knocking out some of the burden of depolymerizing many of these filaments might actually be protective. Um, so in summary here, uh, VPS4A is a target we're very excited about. It's synthetic lethal in tumors that have lost chromosome 18Q, uh, where VPS4B paralog exists, and that this is really frequent. About a third of all cancers have copy loss of VPS4B. Uh, and that abscission effects or defects cell cycle arrest and apoptosis are um, quite prominent, and that uh, what we're hopefully going to uh, be able to do in the future is develop, develop small molecule inhibitors to VPS4A that have the potential to advance some genetic biomarker-driven pre precision cancer medicine. Um, and then I'm going to conclude with just a, a few thoughts here on what we've learned from the de dependency map in general. First is that passenger gene uh, dependencies really far outnumber the driver gene dependencies, and that there may be only a few shots on goal to target the key genes that are mutated and driving and maintaining cancer, but there's a lot more of these passenger genes that are out there, Cyclops genes, Gemini genes, paralog dependencies, and many of these that we're detecting actually arise from partial loss of function uh, in essential cell processes. So it's across the DEPMAP cancer cell lines, some of them by chance may have partially lost some function in some gene, and then we can pick that up in the CRISPR screens because they have the unique genetic background where their loss of function, where if we lose additional redundancy, the cells uh, die. Um, the other thing I touched upon too, but worth reiterating is that the number of synthetic lethal pathway dependencies is smaller than I think we would anticipate. So the paradigm of say, uh, a BRAF mutant melanoma requiring uh, MAC12 and MAP kinase transduction and activation of these pathways is really tractable, but tends to be more rare than I think um, we would have hoped on the outset. Um, the other thing I'll say is to just address a limitation. These are in vitro CRISPR screens where it's genetic knockout of one gene at a time. And so there's many, and not all of the FDA-approved sort of target score in DEPMAP CRISPR screens. Uh, redundancy can buffer some of the gene knockout effects. For example, AKT has uh, three variants. Uh, they don't score because there is that redundancy within most of these cancer cell lines, and if you only knock out one AKT member, uh, they can tolerate and compensate with the other members. But then the other key component, which is, I think, just to know the limitations of what uh, the actual experimental perturbation is, is that gene knockout and small molecule inhibition are fundamentally different. You're removing the protein with a small molecule. It can do all sorts of different things that uh, genetic activation can't do, including being an agonist or a molecular glue. 
And so we need to keep in mind that um, there are many probably true negatives in the data set, uh, but that's something that we're, we're willing to accept. Um, and just to reiterate again too, I think we need to be really bold in thinking about the therapeutic approaches that could be developed to target the full spectrum of genetic dependencies because there are thousands out there, but how you translate those into clinically actionable uh, therapeutics is, is still a major challenge. Uh, and so with that, uh, I'll throw up these acknowledgements, but just uh, in particular, I want to thank both Caitlin and Meredith uh, for their work on the Gemini uh, project, and then also Jasper, Michael, Atana, and Tom on the Paralog dependencies. And I'm happy to take questions. You know, I can't help but notice that VPS genes are discussed in working options all the time. People are discussing the retromers or failure of thiazone. Do, do you have evidence that there is a protein aggregation in cancer systems, or is that still a running hypothesis? So we do have some evidence. This is in the context of when you knock out VPS4A in a cell line that already has loss of B. We do see bioimmunofluorescence accumulation of these escort 3 filaments. And that largely does not happen when cells have sort of enough VPS4B to compensate. So we do think that there is some proteotoxicity uh, associated with that. Mm -hmm. um, I have a question about your the filtering that was done for the Gemini vulnerability SNPs. And you mentioned that you had left out many of the synonymous SNPs and only included non-synonymous SNPs and other types of variations. And I'm wondering if you had considered including the synonymous SNPs and what that might add or if it would add to your yeah, so uh, maybe I wasn't clear on that. We started with basically any variant that was at least common in the population. That's about a 1% abundance. Um, when we were prioritizing then, some of those variants, right, are synonymous. They still could be targeted by, say, allele-specific CRISPR or uh, some other approaches there where you're using that sequence difference in the nucleic acid to try to get some therapeutic index and knockdown. Um, so during the filtering then, we had additional layers of, okay, what's the idealized candidate look like? And in that case, then it's like, okay, we're looking for something that could be crispr also changes in amino acid. Maybe it does some interesting uh, small molecule uh, amenable sort of substitution in amino acid. So it depends where you want to put your cutoff. Yeah. How much of your uh, that map linkage is due to things being in the same protein complex? Obviously, ribosome is a big one. But there's a lot of other smaller complexes. Do you get codependency with with things that are in the same complex? Yes, you do. And it's actually um, what you need to start with is at least some dependency. There's about a third, I think, of the genome where we don't have any evidence when you knock out that gene that it's been sort of a dependency or toxic to any of the cancer lines. But even in a pan-essential complex, you there is enough difference in signal where the most correlated genes tend to be these co-expressed uh, protein complex modules where you can start to identify new protein-protein interactions through a functional screen like this and then go further. So I, I think there's a lot of good signal there where co-essentiality really leads to co-function. And if the correlations are very strong, it's probably a protein complex number. About <laughs> halfway through, you showed uh, a uh, a signal that was common to five different tumors. I think you said about 50% of the cases it was ovarian, gut, and two or three others. Mm -hmm. Do you think that the 
distribution of what, what's the connection between these different tissue sites and tumors, or is this just a random observation? Is there any evolutionary pressure? Uh, are these epithelial? Or right. Yeah. So that's a good question. It's actually a mixture of both. So for VPS4B being close to SMAD4 as a tumor suppressor, it can be deleted just during normal. There's selection pressure to lose SMAD4 as a tumor suppressor during transformation, and VPS4B gets lost there, um, basically, because there's just deletion of one SMAD4 allele. But we also have examples of tumor types that are not dependent on SMAD4, but nonetheless do have some copy loss of VPS4B. In some cases, the copy number breakpoint exclude SMAD4, but they still lose B. And those tumors, uh, or at least the cell lines we validated, are still dependent. And so sometimes it might just be something that isn't undergoing selection pressure, nonetheless tolerated, where you happen to get loss of D. But also in many cancers, of course, um, you will have sort of a selection pressure. But it's not because of VPS4B itself. It's usually the SMAD4 tumor suppressor nearby is the, the selection event. Thank you.